Hello and welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahan. I like my home. It is my home. I have my own resources here. I have the sea. I have my crops. I could live. But if home is going to is going somewhere else, then I will be forced to move. But I do not want to move. Many people in the Pacific are already experiencing the drastic effects of human-induced climate change. Rising sea levels, storm surges and more severe weather events are forcing communities living on low-lying islands and atolls to face the prospect of losing everything as seawater literally bubbles up through the ground and waves wash their shorelines away. On today's show... We look at those who are on the front lines of climate change, facing forced migration and calling for climate justice. I speak with Wendy Flannery, convener of the Climate Front Lines Collective of Friends of the Earth, Brisbane. The collective works on raising awareness and funds for people in low-lying Pacific nations such as Kiribati, Tuvalu and the communities off the coast of Papua New Guinea. I started by asking Wendy to explain how climate change is affecting people in the Pacific. Well, uh, of course, it's already happening in a lot of places uh, and depending on the, uh, the circumstances of people because you've got a lot of different uh, geographical situations in the Pacific and, um, of course, all the different uh, cultural and um, uh, other dimensions connected to how people live and what they need to survive. Um, and to and to flourish in their cultural context. So, um, of course, some of the places that are already being affected, like Fiji, are quite large islands, you know, with mountains and whatever. But a lot of the coastal communities, in particular, uh, and they're now in the hundreds. Um, the the Fiji government has um, is doing a major survey of all the affected communities and have already started to relocate people. So. That's one example, um, and you know, parts of Vanuatu and the other uh, areas with substantial land areas, uh, people can sometimes move uh, within their their own jurisdiction. And in the case of the Fiji communities that have already been relocated, they've actually been able to relocate on their own traditional land, which makes a huge difference, of course. Uh, where you have traditional land ownership systems. Um, the, uh, among the most threatened peoples, of course, are the peoples who live uh, in, on small, small islands, small low-lying islands, and that includes entire nations in the Pacific uh, composed of at, essentially of atolls. So um, the key ones would, that we know about would be uh, Tuvalu, Kiribati, and the Marshall Islands, and a good... Uh, section of the Federated States of Micronesia as well. So uh, those atoll countries, which have very fragile ecosystems, um, are among the most threatened and 
not just their whole livelihoods uh, are threatened, but their entire sovereignty, of course, is threatened if the entire population has to move. Now, the term forced uh, climate migrants uh, has been developed and, and is being used by people in the Pacific and people advocating for them. Why is this term used as opposed to refugee or climate refugee? What's, what's the difference? Uh, well, there's a lot of debate about it, um, uh, you know, and in different contexts and interesting how things shift as well. Um, we origin- a friend of the Earth originally used the term climate refugees uh, and we were focusing on the Pacific and we issued a, a major publication called A Citizen's Guide to Climate Refugees in 2006, I think, uh, five or six, that was then revised in 2007. But um, there were a number of factors why we uh, debated the language. Um, one was that um, with, with the situation in the world uh, of refugees, and we know today how that has just become increasingly dramatic and uh, demanding, uh, people needing to be resettled uh, as refugees and asylum seekers. Um, the numbers are increasing daily with all the conflicts and other issues happening around the world that um, the Refugee Convention uh, just would not be able to cope uh, with you know, huge numbers of people who were primarily driven by climate change uh, as distinct from uh, political persecution and other factors that come under the Refugee Convention. So that was one issue. Um, in fact, a, a woman, Claire Van Herpen, did a, did a paper uh, for her master's uh, uh, there um, a couple of years ago arguing that the Refugee Convention wasn't suitable and gave a number of reasons why. Um, we uh, essentially decided to change the use of language because um, the Pacific peoples themselves weren't keen on it. Uh, one reason, I suppose, was because you know the whole um, situation in Australia politically of dealing with refugees uh, had uh, made people feel very, very uh, uncertain and uneasy about uh, how, how refugees were being treated here. Um, but I think the primary reason was that um, people were saying uh, we're not being forced to move because of what's happening, because of, what, uh, because of factors that are driven within our own countries, essentially. They're being driven by the, the large polluting countries, um, historically polluting countries around the world, the people who are primarily responsible for the situation we now find ourselves in with climate change. So we're not, um, you know, begging for rescue as refugees in that sense. Um, <clears throat> we want justice. We want, want it recognised that uh, this situation is occurring because of what other people outside our countries have been doing and continue to do. And so... Um, there was a very interesting document that came out of the Pacific Conference of Churches in 2008 called the Moana Declaration. And they used the term forced climate migrants. And uh, so at that time, we decided we'd take up that language because uh, that's what people were saying. Uh, in, that was one of the, the key expressions used in the Pacific. 
So we've been uh, tending to uh, adopt that language, and there's been a lot of debate, as I say. Uh, an interesting um, article I just saw last in the last few days, um, there is a has been a group in Europe and um, uh, a group at the University of Limoges in Belgium uh, that have been w working on a draft convention uh, on this issue uh, because international conventions, of course, having to go through the UN system, take um, decades sometimes to be passed. But they thought, well, uh, we need to at least start something. But one of the key people who was responsible for putting that together has just issued another uh, an article recently saying, well, he's inclined to go back to refugee language because, um, uh, you know, the migrant language is just not in, uh, adequate enough to pick up the human rights dimension uh, of the issue and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that... Um, People are being, as it were, persecuted from the outside uh, by climate, the impacts of climate change. Well, picking up on that issue of the definition of, of refugee and whether um, peoples in the Pacific and internationally who, who are being uh, forced to relocate, who are being displaced by the effects of climate change, there was, I noticed uh, the case recently of a person from Kiribati, um, uh, Loena uh, uh, Titiota, uh, who uh, was refused um, uh, refugee status by the New Zealand government, uh, Kiribati being a nation that's, uh, as you've mentioned, has seen the effects of, of climate change and Kiribati will be underwater by the end of the century and certainly in, uninhabitable before then. So it's interesting um, what, you know, who is being considered a refugee and who isn't, and as you've mentioned, what the Refugee Convention perhaps doesn't cover. Yes. Uh, yes, I think we're, we're well aware of that case and there's been quite a, a lot of debate about it as well. Um, and... Uh, and I think one of the things it illustrates uh, very, very clearly is that at the moment there are absolutely no legal frameworks for people to work through to get recognition uh, of their situation. And uh, if they have to move, uh, particularly if they have to move internationally, um, you know, there's, there's nothing really in place. Um, the Human Rights Council at the UN is picking this up more and more. Um, I think some of the groups, particularly in Europe, are trying very hard to um, uh, get um, get this somehow into the uh, uh, more he heavily into the agenda at the uh, climate talks in Paris uh, in December, where the, where a new uh, agreement is supposed to be uh, negotiated for the. Uh, for um, emissions reduction and all the other dimensions of climate change uh, post-2020. Um, so uh, what success they'll have in getting that onto the main agenda is still unknown. Uh, the other group that is actually working now on the issue is um, the International Organisation for Migration. And uh, they're doing a project in different places called... Um, Oh, sorry, I forget the name of it, but they've been funded by the EU, so they're doing it in uh, collaboration with the EU, and they're trying to focus on 
uh, getting practical examples of what's happening and what are, the, what are the, all the dimensions involved when people have to move. Now, um, I'm not sure whether they're doing that in, uh, in relation to international movement. Uh, I know they're doing some of it uh, in relation to internal uh, migration. Of course, one of the big issues of, of internal migration uh, is the land issue. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in Fiji, as I mentioned, those cases that have happened already, people have been able to move on their own land. But um, even in the case of Tulere Pesa, uh, moving to Bougainville, they, had to, uh, they ended up uh, being able to move because they had access to a plantation. Uh, to plantation land that was owned by the Catholic Church there and that was given to them for that purpose and, and three other uh, locations as well. Um, because uh, where, the, where customary land ownership exists, uh, and there is a case in, um, in, Bougainville, uh, in, in Booker, actually, in the north of Bougainville, where the, uh, the, go the, um, the government has tried to uh, start a relocation program for the atolls but, um, you know, there's been difficulty with the local landowners and, and whatever. So, um, and I think that's going to be the case in a lot of places in Papua New Guinea, where still a huge percentage of land comes under traditional land ownership. And as populations grow, there's stress and strains on land, particularly if people live uh, from subsistence, um, gardening and so on. You've mentioned communities from... Uh island atolls off the coast of, of PNG and off yes. the coast of Bougainville, some of whom have already been relocated. You mentioned uh, one community which has been had some success, but also some of the, uh, some of the, the dangers and difficulties of trying to relocate people um, in Bougainville and in PNG. Um, so some of the issues have been the, the ongoing legacy of the Civil War and also customary land ownership. Yes, that's right. I think you're talking about um, uh, Tulele Pesa, uh, which was a, uh, an NGO set up by the uh, Council of Elders in uh, the Carteret Islands, uh, northeast of Bougainville, uh, but within the Bougainville uh, jurisdiction. Um, it was set up in 2005 because the chiefs realised, uh, or the elders uh, realised, that, um, that people would have to start to move, that uh, you know, it was just going to be increasingly difficult for the people, for their livelihoods to be sustained uh, on the atolls. So um, uh, they employed a woman named Ursula Rakova uh, to head up that program. Uh, she already had experience working both with environmental and development NGOs, so she was a, a really good person to uh, to do that. And she's been working on that since 2006. Um, and uh, they started in 2009, the first site, uh, and they had done a survey of who was, which families were willing to move first and so on. But it's been a long and difficult process. Um, they've, of course, uh, one of the things they realised uh, early on was the, um, they would need to, to do intensive work um, building relationships with the community in the area or the areas where the relocation program was going to be uh, happening. And um, so they set up exchange visits between uh, elders and, or chiefs in the, uh, 
in the between the Carterets and the, the locations on mainland Bougainville, uh, visits back and forth. Also, they had a youth speaking tour, uh, for youth in the Carterets uh, speaking in the community where the relocation was going to happen. And um, also, uh, you know, using some traditional negotiation rituals and uh, techniques to try to... Um, uh, make sure that that land would be uh, uh, okay for them to use um, from the perspective of the of the people nearby. So uh, it's and it's only actually this year that they've ever received any government funding. Um, even though there was funding available uh, through the PNG government, probably via Australia, uh, this year for the first time they've been able to access some uh, government funding. Uh, they've had to rely on uh, NGOs and uh, a, a couple of, um, uh, well, an embassy uh, for, from um, one of the Nordic countries, actually, in Australia. So, um, yes, it's it's a big struggle to uh, to do such a uh, an amazing project. <laughs> You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, we're talking about climate change and forced migration in the Pacific. We know that we are not alone in this fight on climate change. I met people from Kiribati, I met people from Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands who are also experiencing rising sea levels. Climate change is not just about statistics. Climate change is not just about science. Climate change is about human rights and the vulnerability of these people who live in those smaller atolls in the Pacific. Where is human rights when it comes to them being displaced from their communities to another location, not of their choice, but they have to move because they are being affected and they are being forced to leave. I'm interested in how Pacific peoples are organising in the face of of, um, of this climate catastrophe that they're, they're facing. Tuvalu tried to negotiate with Australia to relocate. Um, That's right. And that was completely stonewalled by the Australian government in the 2000s. So That's what, right. They what, said, actually, the, the government, the officials from Tuvalu said... Um, Yes, they, we had the door slammed in our faces, is how they expressed it. I was wondering if you could expand then on other ways that um, Pacific peoples are, are seeking to organise in the face of, of um, forced migration due to climate change. Okay. Now, uh, I think, um, you know, different governments are developing different programs. Uh, one of the well-known programs... Um, both uh, internationally anyway, is the program of the, the Kiribati. They have devised a program called Migration with Dignity, um, the focus of which is um, trying to train their young people both uh, internally and through uh, uh, programs that can be made available overseas um, so that when people have to move, they don't, they don't come as, as it were as beggars but um, they come as, uh, you know, people who contribute to the society and uh, where they have to move to. 
So uh, one example of that uh, is the Kani program that was uh, run here in Brisbane. Uh, I think it's just about to come to the end now um, of the of the groups who came. Three groups came of young people came from Kiribati to train uh, in a nursing program at Griffith University in Brisbane. I think there were 85 altogether in three different intakes, and um, so they should all be finished. Uh, and the idea was that uh, they could either remain in Australia and work as nurses or uh, return to Kiribati uh, and work there. It was quite a, a difficult um, pro- program, I think, for the students to, to just come here and fit into the student scene in Australia. Uh, there were supports provided, but um, I think some of the students uh, found it very difficult, even so. But anyway, um, one of the, the positive things here in Brisbane, anyway, is that um, for the last two and a half years or so, uh, a group has been fu- functioning called the Pacific Islands Reference Group. And it acts as a kind of a peak body now for all the Pacific Islander communities uh, in Brisbane and possibly Queensland even, um, and links in with the Ethnic Communities Council. Now, um, one of the uh, one of the uh, values of that group is that it's bringing all the Pacific Island communities together. Uh, it's helping them to build their voice uh, in the community. It's also serving to um, enhance and develop. Uh, the, the cultural riches that people uh, bring with them from their their uh, countries of origin, and to uh, share those with the wider Australian community. And um, we're, our group here in Brisbane, uh, our Climate Frontlines group, is now working quite closely with that group to um, uh, to raise awareness about climate change, to um, and to to get the Pacific Islanders here in Brisbane to be. Uh, you know, to be spokespeople also, and to explore what it will mean for them and for the wider Australian community to be able to uh, accept people who need to come here because they're forced to move. What can people in Australia do to work in solidarity with um, Pacific people who are currently being affected by climate change and looking at uh, being forced to migrate? Well, I think ultimately we do have to get our governments to take ser- take some serious steps uh, in the international negotiations about our own, uh, you know, uh, mitigating uh, the effects of climate change. Um, as, a, as a highly industrialised country, there's been one of the countries responsible, and this particularly with the huge uh, emphasis we place on. Uh, you know, keeping our lifestyle the way it is because of uh, fossil fuel exports, um, we do have to take a big responsibility uh, in the area of mitigation and Pacific governments are constantly asking for that to happen. Um, But, uh, you know, there are going to be a number of other things that need to happen. There's the the Green Climate Fund that's been set up uh, in the UN and that the Pacific governments are, among others, of course, in the, the international arena, are asking the, the, the rich countries and the countries historically responsible for the situation to come up with significant contributions to that fund 
for adaptation purposes. Uh, there's also um, a, a, a dynamic happening now uh, in the negotiations called uh, the Warsaw um, Warsaw Protocol, not exactly a protocol, I forget the actual word, for loss and damage. Um, that is also, it, it will take quite a while to see what the implications of that are. But these are all things that the Australian government needs to be uh, very involved in and won't pull their weight unless the population, unless we, uh, as the citizens of Australia, put a lot more pressure on them to do so. Um, w w it remains to be seen how the, um, the migration issues, especially international migration issues, are going to uh, work out. Um, uh, we believe in Friends of the Earth that Australia does have a serious responsibility, particularly in relation to the Pacific. Um, but uh, so far, there hasn't been um, a serious interest from uh, either of the two major parties to consider this uh, concern. It's easy to imagine a scenario where people are in really dire straits, say in Kiribati, Tuvalu, uh, uh, some of those small island states, um, and Australia, you know, comes in as big brother with a humanitarian rescue mission. Um, when people are in real dire straits and it's like we pat ourselves on the back, as it were, and even maybe people could be forced to move against their will when they really want to stay in their own place and pass their last days there. So I think um, that's, you know, a potential scenario that we're looking at and that needs to be avoided at all costs and to... Um, uh, you know, to respect the fact that the uh, the peoples of the Pacific and the governments are saying, we want to be in charge of what happens to us. We want to um, shape our own future in the face of these uh, huge challenges, and we want proper partnerships uh, from countries like Australia. Wendy Flannery from the Climate Frontlines Collective of Friends of the Earth Brisbane. To find out more, go to brisbane.foe.org.au. You also heard the voice of Sati from the island of Taku and Ursula Rakova from the organisation Tulele Piesa of the Carteret Islands, both off the coast of PNG. Sati's audio was from a documentary called There Once Was an Island, directed by Bria March. It's well worth checking out, so go to thereoncewasanisland.com And Ursula's audio was from a short video called Sisters of the Planet, produced by Oxfam. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. 
I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.